Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Today on Civil War Talk Radio, we'll be discussing David Schenck, an obscure North Carolina bureaucrat whose diary reveals a surprising amount of detail about the inner workings of the Confederacy, as revealed in the book David Schenck and the Contours of Confederate Identity by Rodney Stewart. He'll be our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking on behalf of the university or its impressive 2-0 football team, the Pirates, or anything else here in North Carolina, just speaking for myself, and our guests will do the same thing, as always. It's a relatively new season, the second show here of our 10th season on Civil War Talk Radio, and we've got a few changes, a new opening that you heard tonight for the first time, there will be a new closing, and a there's a new rejoin, as I believe they call it in the business, uh, Thanks to everyone at Voice America who has helped make this uh, smooth transition to the plush new surroundings that we enjoy here, uh, orally speaking at least, at Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's the time for the live show from now on. So if you're listening because you've downloaded this and wonder what's happening Friday afternoon, nothing. You can go back to work. Uh, But Wednesday at 7 is the new live show at uh, the voiceamerica.com website, or you can access past shows at www.impedimentsofwar.org, the greatest single place to go on the Internet, uh, find out what's happening on the show. And there's a lot happening. We will have next week uh, Lou Major, who was supposed to be on last uh, two weeks ago, and uh, I mess some things up, but he'll be back to talk about Lincoln's 100 Days and also his remarkably short book on the entire Civil War. Uh, On September 25th, that will be uh, the week of the Lincoln Colloquium taking place at Knox College in Galesburg that following weekend. But since the live show is no longer on Friday, I can do a show that week and still go to the colloquium. So Everybody wins. Our guest will be uh, the manager of the CSS Noose, ironclad, uh, the remains of that ironclad vessel that sits in Kinston, North Carolina. Her name is Sarah Risty Davis, and she'll talk to us about that ship and where it is and why it's there. Uh, October 2nd, Stephen Rammeld joins us to talk about discipline in the Union Army. October 9th, Eric Jacobson and the Battle of Franklin October 16th, Philip Lee, Sam Watkins, and his famous diary, Company H. And where do we go? Uh, And then October 23rd, Alan Gelzo will be here to talk about the Battle of Gettysburg and his book that has gotten a great deal of attention in this Civil War publishing season. So lots coming up on the show, and hope you can join us for that. Uh, If you can support the show the purchasing of books for the show in particular, that's always welcome. There are PayPal buttons you can click on on the impedimentsofwar.org website. In plusher, happier past times, I was able to send out books to contributors, and I have pretty much run out of books. If you donated money to the show in the last month or two and didn't get a book out of it, thinking you were, please email me at my last name and first initial at ecu.edu. Go to the East Carolina website and look look me up. And let me know that uh, I owe you a book if, if you donate under the expectation of getting one, because the old shows all say you will. 
And in the meantime, we'll try to think of something new. Perhaps I can come up with uh, some new product, something uh, that would cause cause people to tremble with anticipation and for the opportunity to donate money, knowing they would get, I don't know, used paper clips or something from my desk. I'm looking around and see what can I give people. Uh, so we'll figure something out. But in the meantime, contributions do remain welcome, and uh, we will at least give you uh, hearty thanks for those. Today, we're talking about... Uh, well, last week we talked about George Mead, a very interesting book that was subtitled The Search for George Gordon Mead. Uh, or that was the title, Searching for George Gordon Mead. The idea that Mead had disappeared somewhere after winning the Battle of Gettysburg. This week we have someone who not only has disappeared but never appeared in the first place, uh, David Schenk, a North Carolina lawyer, middle class uh, bureaucrat in the Confederate uh, a sequestration system, and after the war, judge and and did a few other things. Yet he's the subject of uh, not only this book, but has been mentioned in a number of other books. Let's find out uh, who this guy was, uh, why he is as interesting as he is, and, and I'll let you be the judge of why uh, of what you think of this fellow. Uh, and we'll do that by talking to the author of a new book called David Schenk and the Contours of Confederate Identity. It's written by Rodney Stewart. Professor Stewart, are you there? Hello, and thank you for uh, having me on the show. Well, I'm de- delighted you could be here and, and uh, join us for the show. The um, uh, y- You and I have not officially been introduced at a conference or anywhere else, but uh, can we go by first names? Can I call you Rodney? Rod, Certainly. what, what uh, and and please call me Jerry. So let me start by observing that uh, the dust jacket says you you teach uh, history at the University of South Carolina at Salkahatchee. That's correct. Is is academic life as upside down crazy in your state as it is here in the old North State right now? <laughs> yes, indeed it is. Many many changes. Uh, are are underway uh, in the academy in South Carolina. Uh, the, the same is true here. I, I hope yours are better than ours, although I'm not confident of that. But the uh, <laughs> the the slashing of the budget and the general disrespect to the governor's mocking of liberal arts, uh, that sort of thing, really don't help us much in our mission of trying to teach our students about the past and develop the skills of critical thinking they will need in the 21st century. You can tell I'm good at this, yes. <laughs> uh, at, at advertising it. Uh, I, I'm sure you're running into the same thing. Oh, yes, yes. I think it's, it's uh, uh, things are the same all over. Uh, the, the liberal arts are, are uh, they're under attack everywhere. It, it's a curious thing because uh, it, if we have to be in the liberal arts, being in history might be one of the better places to be because you can find people at every point in the political spectrum who all agree on the importance of history, even if they, they think about it differently. It's hard to find anyone, right or left, who says, no, nah, we don't need to know about our past. That's true. Yeah, it is kind of odd that history is, is uh, you know, enduring this, this, on, this onslaught of uh, being kind of uh, run over by STEM education 
uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, the value of history is, uh, is is cherished by both sides of the political spectrum. And it's it's a good thing for us. Speaking of STEM, our uh, the dean of our College of Arts and Sciences this past summer was finally uh, resigned un, under what you know politely was described as resigning, but he was essentially forced out because uh, he was too staunch a defender of the liberal arts. But his own uh, discipline is biology. And he's now at your place, uh, at Columbia at least, at the University of South Carolina, Columbia, running an institute of STEM education. So uh, he landed on his feet. Evidently. <laughs> uh, well, enough about us and our contemporary problems. Let me ask you one question first about your background. Uh, how did you get interested in the Civil War originally, oh. or in that era of time? Well, I... I've, I've always been passionate about history, um, and uh, of course I, I studied history um, in college, and uh, and then uh, had a brief period where I was involved with um, international business, and realized that my passion, my calling in life, really was uh, in in the field of history, and went back to uh, to graduate school, uh, and uh, ended up I kind of gravitated towards Civil War history particularly. Um, and I uh, had some great mentors along the way. Um, I uh, got a master's degree at Western Carolina University and worked with Peter Carmichael there, mm-hmm. uh, and then went on to Auburn University, uh, where I wrote uh, the book that we're going to discuss tonight um, under the direction of Ken No. Ah. Uh, so I had some, some great mentors. Absolutely. Those are some, but both of them have been on the show uh, at once or twice, I think. Uh, and, and uh, wonderful historians. I was, in the past, uh, over the 10 years I've been doing this, I, I often ask people that question to get get things started. And one of the things that comes up again and again is uh, people of my age or older, uh, 50 and up certainly, recall the American Heritage History of the Civil War uh, by Bruce Catton, and so I'm curious if, if that still holds sway with younger scholars, if they still encountered. Did you encounter that when you were young? Well, I did. In fact, that was my first real introduction to um, uh, to Civil War studies. Uh, and uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. It drew me in, and I wanted to know more and more. And then I really got interested in uh, the more social uh, and cultural aspects of uh, of the middle period, and um, uh, I, I'm I'm still fascinated. I'm still learning more and more uh, every day. Uh, that is is one of the fun things about what we do. Well, how did you come across then this uh, David Schenk, who I had not really thought much about, uh, but when I began reading the book, I realized, oh, I have heard of this guy. Uh, how did you come across him? Well, that's uh, that's an interesting story in its own right. I was uh, in my first semester of graduate school at Western Carolina, and um, uh, I was taking a, a New South uh, reading seminar uh, that was being uh, taught by Peter Carmichael. And the semester was wearing on, and pressure was mounting for uh, for us to to choose a, a thesis topic. And I was there with the understanding that, that, uh, that Pete was going to direct my thesis. 
And so we were talking about uh, possible topics. And in the class, we had just finished reading uh, Ed Ayer's wonderful book, uh, The Promise of the New South. And in that book, of course, Ayer's uh, makes reference to David Shank. He makes good use of David Shank's diaries um, uh, many times. And we got to talking about David Shank. And uh, Pete uh, suggested that I look into... Um, um, maybe uh, producing some sort of a, a, a biography of, of Shank's wartime diaries. And I really wasn't all that familiar with David Shank at that point, of course, and so I, I contacted Ed Ayers <laughs> and mm-hmm. asked him if, uh, if he thought that uh, the Shank diaries would be a, a worthy thesis topic, and of course he, he thought it was a, a wonderful idea. So uh, the people there at uh, the Southern Historical Collection uh, at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, kindly sent me uh, his wartime diaries. And this was in December of 1998, and um, I read those diaries, all of his diaries, in fact, um, right up until um, 2008. (laughs) Mm. That's a long time to have someone in your head. It, it really is, particularly uh, uh, someone like this. When when I mentioned this uh, at, at lunch the other day, I mentioned uh, this to my colleague Karen Zip, who teaches uh, North Carolina history, mostly 20th century social history here at ECU. Yes. And she said, oh, yeah, I, I've written about him. I He was in an article. Uh, she used him as an example for uh, the, the class-based as opposed to race-based uh, elite power grab after after the war I, I haven't read that article but but she knew all about him and and I was I thought okay I'm I'm behind the curve here all my uh and, and then I realize uh uh that he shows up in in George Kundal's uh, edition of of Stephen Ramser's correspondence That's right. yes. Yes. uh so and in Gary Gallagher's biography of Stephen Dotson Ramser as well so so he's he's not quite as obscure as I make him out to be. I'm doing too much talking. We're going to take a short break, come back, and hear your description of who David Schenk was and why we should care about him. We'll do that in just a minute when we come back with our guest, Rodney Stewart, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking with Rodney Stewart, author of David Schenck and the Contours of Confederate Identity. We'll start this segment uh, with a spoiler alert. Uh, let's get the 30-second the biography. Uh, what did Schenck do before, during, and after the war? Then we'll, we'll go back and talk about the whys. <laughs> okay. Um before the war, he is, um, well, he truly is uh, obscure. Um, he's not on anyone's radar. He's born into what you could easily describe as a professional middle-class family of modest means. His father is the town doctor. Um, he becomes a lawyer uh, because he sees great uh, opportunity for social mobility uh, in that profession. And uh, then the secession crisis comes along. And uh, he, early on, casts himself as, uh, as a disunionist. He sees in the secession crisis an opportunity for himself to, uh, essentially to catapult himself into the center of respectable society in North Carolina, uh, a group, you know, the, the, I guess the, um, uh, the, the wealthy elites that he had longed to be a part of for most of his life. Um, Serves as a secondary uh, Confederate bureaucrat on the home front. Never, uh, uh, never serves in the army. That, in spite of the fact that uh, two of his uh, childhood friends, uh, John F. Hoke and certainly uh, Stephen Dodson Ramser, both become Confederate major generals. Uh, and in fact, uh, Dodson Ramser becomes really quite a distinguished uh, uh, general who's killed there at uh, Cedar Creek. Um, after the war, uh, Shank. Um, become, well, he practices law for a, a brief period of time, but then he becomes judge of the Ninth Judicial District of the uh, Superior Courts. But he also then becomes the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in all of Western North Carolina, and he promotes uh, the growth of, of that organization, the, the Invisible Empire, as it's known in, in his area. And when uh, when the federal government begins uh, a pretty uh, vigorous and sustained um, uh, attack on uh, on uh, the Invisible Empire. 
uh, and resistance to um, uh, to radical reconstruction. Shank is called onto the carpets there in Washington and is called to um, uh, to testify before the Senate committee, and um, he. Uh, he drops dime on all of his uh, his uh, associates there uh, in the Invisible Empire, and that doesn't win any friends for him uh, within the ranks of that organization. Uh, later, he um, uh, makes a bid for um, uh, the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and he's denied that. And in fact, his, his past catches up with him at that point. And he really falls out of favor politically and socially at that point. Then later becomes uh, chief justice or sorry, chief counsel for the Richmond and Danville uh, Railroad, and he moves from Lincolnton, North Carolina, to Greensboro, North Carolina, where he lives the rest of his life. And there in Greensboro, he becomes quite a you know, quite a, a positive uh, advocate of of, of uh, you know public education and. Uh, he becomes rather progressive, and uh, he also uh, develops uh, the Guilford uh, Courthouse Battlegrounds Company there, uh, which is an interesting story uh, unto itself. Um, David Shank's life is the story of someone seeking redemption, um, particularly in the latter half of his life, redemption from uh, sins that he commits the first half of his life, and and there's a substantial number of them. He is he is really quite a. Uh, uh, it, it's it's hard to figure out, I guess, why he and and uh, Stephen Rams were, were best friends as as they were when they were young men, uh, they, because you know, Ramser, as you said, becomes a, a major general and, and dies a heroic death and. You know, lives out the values of the society he was raised in, uh, in terms of honor and duty. And uh, Schenk does, you know, Schenk is a, is a chicken hawk. He stays home. He encourages everyone to secede and fight and go to it. And then they all go, and he says, "I'll stay here where it's safe." Yes, and indeed he does. And in fact, um, well, if I, I think to answer the question, how how is it or why was it that they were uh, friends? Uh, I think the answer to that is is really rather simple. Um, David Shank, uh, his his mother Rebecca died when he was two years old, and uh, he um, uh, he exhibits throughout most of his adult life symptoms of what uh, psychologists would describe as attachment theory, um, and uh, what it is is kind of a lingering sense of guilt, largely because he can't remember what his mother looks like anymore. Uh, he can just remember her, and that's that bond between himself and the primary caregiver, his mother, uh, was prematurely severed. And so he has all of these psychological hang-ups uh, throughout most of his life, but one of the uh, major hang-ups was depression. He was given to melancholy. He was kind of a somber person, um, very introverted. And Dodson Ramsey was the complete opposite. Um, he was uh, extroverted. Uh, very, uh, very vivacious, um, and it's, it's, the, it's a case of opposites attracting. They, they were drawn to each other, um, and they just became the best of friends, more like brothers, really. Um, and you add to the fact that David Shank's father never remarried, and so he grew up in a motherless home at a time when uh, the mother was 
uh, played an enormous role in in the development of of character and certainly of virtue um, uh, among the members of her family. And that's absent in David Shank's childhood home. Yet he sees that all of that in the Ramser family, and he wants that. He longs for that. The Ramsers were also wealthy uh, merchant planters, uh, slave owners, um, and really quite prominent in Lincoln County. And uh, that, too, was very attractive to Shank. He, uh, he truly admired the, the dominion that's, uh, that they displayed over their slaves and the influence that they had on the community. So these were all things that Shank wanted. Uh, he wanted very much. Um, and they seemed to come naturally to someone like Dodson Ramser. But Shank really had to struggle uh, to, uh, to acquire these, these characteristics. And when it's all said and done, at the end of his life, uh, he's never really able to acquire them. He can only imitate them. Well, he, he actually marries into the, the Ramser family, and uh, he, he treats Mrs. Ramser as a surrogate mother for much of his, his that's, younger that's life. That's correct, yes. Lucy Ramser, his mother, well, I should say, he, he does, you're right, he marries uh, Sally Ramser, who is Dodson Ramser's youngest sister. Um, and it's... Um, and this is, I mean, this is this is his way of actually becoming a part of that family. Um, and he also believes that association with the Ramser family uh, is going to springboard him into uh, that, that, that polite society that he wants to be a part of. Um, so he's very much a man on the make in that sense. Um, uh, Lucy Ramser, who becomes his mother-in-law, uh, you, you're absolutely correct. He more or less adopts her as as his mother, and uh, shortly after he marries Sally Ramser, uh, Lucy Ramser dies, and so it's it's another painful loss um, for David Shank. And uh, but that's also a moment when an identity, uh, this new identity, this Confederate identity, uh, begins to emerge when certain elements come together. Uh, under a very specific set of circumstances that allows for him to to not only craft this identity, but then to put that identity into play uh, in in North Carolina society. And it works. Um, And we can talk about the details of that um, now, if you like. (laughs) Well, sure. Well, you you say specific circumstances, and you mentioned secession. It, It really is the secession crisis that gives him the opportunity to define himself in this fashion. Is that accurate? That's, that's dead on. It is, it is the secession crisis. Um, and it's, he, carries, he brings to the secession crisis uh, all of these antebellum notions about, about manhood, um, about virtue, um, about um, uh, you know, paternalism, all these, these uh, characteristics that are really displayed by... Uh, in, to a very large extent, the planter elite, uh, and a sense of honor, very much, um, uh, very much a part of that. And um, but as the secession crisis looms, he and others like him are able to redefine the terms of being uh, uh, respectable. I think is a good term to uh, to apply to him. Um, because he struggled with religion, he struggled with faith all of his life. And uh, he sees in the secession crisis an opportunity where he can put his faith into action. And what that means, literally, is for him, his faith 
and Confederate nationalism walk hand in hand. His Confederate nationalism is essentially an act of religiosity. And that is the new image of a Confederate nationalist. To put this in context, the... It's important, I think, to recognize that not everybody in North Carolina is going along. That it, It's called the secession crisis uh, because North Carolina does not secede early. It's the last state uh, to go out. That's and right. there's a, a strong unionist sentiment. So, so, so Schenck and his uh, political friends who are supporting this, are are the radical extreme they're they're pushing for this and there's a very strong body of people who don't want any part of it that's right in fact uh, most of the planters of north carolina uh those those who stood to lose the most uh in a civil war uh were very much the, the wait and see crowd um and you're right you you, you raise a very important point here um this is um as the secession crisis unfolds, um, things get pretty tense in North Carolina. Uh, the Democratic Party, though it had not split, there were two uh, clear camps, uh, you know, within within the Democratic fold. The, the majority of Democrats were were sort of wait and see uh, Democrats. They were moderates, and they understood that uh, that votes for for Breckenridge. Uh, were most people that voted for Breckenridge, most Democrats, that is, that voted for Breckenridge, were, were unionists, or they wanted to, uh, you know, to, they didn't want to rush down the path of secession. Um, and then, of course, there, there were the disunionists, that, which was the minority within the Democratic Party, and they were considered the radical fringe. So they are that, that element of radical politics in North Carolina, right on the eve of, of secession. And David Schenck had allied himself with that particular faction within the Democratic Party early on. And so, really, this is kind of a risky move for him, especially for someone who becomes a lawyer uh, and who's, who's, as I say, who's kind of socially uh, on the make. He's trying to, to establish a reputation. He's trying to get into um, a polite society. And it will lead him... Uh, to take certain risks that, uh, if if successful, it might pay off rather well, but if it fails socially and politically, Cenk is ruined. And so, and, and as the, it looks like it's going to because the the convention that he wants, the secession convention, is voted down. They don't even hold the convention. That's uh, right. Initially, and so they, they, there's they vote down the uh, holding the the secession convention, but then shortly after that, the the secessionists hold another convention. Um, it's called the Goldsboro Convention. This is, what, this is why, part of why I was really attracted to David Schenck. As you, as you, it's like, his life is like an onion. As you peel it, it just, <laughs> it just becomes ever more, uh, ever more interesting in, in many ways. Um, the, the secessionists call for a convention uh, to reconsider uh, the idea of secession. They meet in Goldsboro in March of 1861. And there at Goldsboro, they form a new political party. And that party is known as the Southern Rights Party of North Carolina. And we're going to talk about something that's truly obscure. I challenge you to, to find, <laughs> mm. find an abundance of information pertaining to the Southern Rights Party. Uh, it was a very short-lived party, but they, they form this party, and they quickly break up into committees, and they come up with uh, an agenda and uh, a, a sort of a raison d'etre. And that's, that purpose is ultimately to um, 
uh, to wrest North Carolina uh, away from the Union and join it with the Confederate States by means of violent revolution, if needs be. So in the second chapter of the book, which is entitled The Secessionist Revolution, I'm basically asking the fundamental question, who were the secessionists uh, in North Carolina? And the answer to that is they were dangerous revolutionaries uh, that were ready to resort to violent revolution. And David Shank had uh, cast his lot in with that particular group. And he was proudly a, a founding member of the Southern Rights Party. And that is going to uh, pave the way for the role that he plays on the home fronts during the war. All of the members, well, virtually all of the members of um, uh, of the, the founding members of the Southern Rights Party, they end up with uh, these key bureaucratic posts in the Confederate government, some uh, in secondary bureaucratic positions. Others go on to, uh, to the Confederate Congress and, uh, and other lofty positions. David Shank um, will apply for a position um, on the home front under the newly created Act of Sequestration. And this this chapter of, of his life, uh, when I began to, to research this back in the early days at Western Carolina, I didn't really understand what, what this was, what the act of sequestration was. I labored under the misapprehension that uh, as a receiver uh, under the act of sequestration, David Shank was some form of a tax collector. Um, later, uh, I, I learned that he was nothing of the sort, and that the act of sequestration uh, was was really, it, really it was quite, quite, quite something else. <laughs> Let's take a short break here and hold our listeners in suspense, uh, and, and because that really is, I think, the, the key thing, uh, certainly in, in Schenck's wartime career, his role as a receiver under the act of sequestration. Uh, it is a fascinating and, and little-known part of Confederate uh, economy and politics. And we'll learn more about it in just a moment when we come back and talk more with Rodney Stewart, author of David Schenck and the Contours of Confederate Identity. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at VoiceAmericaTRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN or follow along with us at VoiceAmericaTRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. 
The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Rodney Stewart. We're talking about David Schenck and the Contours of Confederate Identity. That's the name of Dr. Stewart's book, and it's about uh, Rodney. No, he is Rodney Stewart. It's about David Schenck, uh, who is uh, was a, a Confederate uh, secessionist and uh, lawyer, bureaucrat, politician, eventually a judge. Uh, never a soldier, however, uh, eager to secede and bring a war on, but not one who wanted to go to the front himself. Certainly not an admirable characteristic, uh, but not necessarily his worst characteristic. We left off talking about the Sequestration Act, which was the subject of uh, a show we did uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio a few a year or two back when Mark Weitz was on, who's written a book on piracy, the act of sequestration. And that was my real introduction uh, to this remarkable piece of legislation that allowed uh, the Confederate government to essentially seize any Yankee property they found in the South. Uh, so, Rodney, uh, how did David Schenck gets appointed a receiver under the act? How does he execute the, the uh, law that allows the seizure of any northern property? Well, um, the the Sequestration Act is, I'm sure you you know, is is complicated. Uh, mm-hmm. It is a retaliatory piece of legislation to the first Confiscation Act, and the choice of sequestration, which is, as you've mentioned, uh, the the right of the Confederate government to seize property that is owned in part or in full by someone that the government deems to be an alien enemy. Uh, and it seems, if you read through uh, all of the, the surviving evidence of the Confederate district courts, that the definition of an alien enemy is, is someone residing outside of the Confederacy. And so they, didn't, they didn't bother to ascertain the, the facts or, or the, the, uh, the situation that applied to, uh, to any particular individual, why they were residing outside of the Confederacy. It was enough that they weren't there. And it was also enough that uh, local locals, 
uh, had brought uh, to the attention of, of uh, the grand jury and uh, receivers um, that these people are suspect. Well, they could be suspect for a variety of reasons. <laughs> it could be that people didn't like their politics. It could be that um, they didn't like that person, you know, personally, uh, which often was the case. But as that applies to David Shank, uh, how he went about seizing property, uh, there is a, a veil of secrecy that is cast over uh, the business of the district courts. In fact, I'm working on a, a book right now that deals specifically with this topic, um, and uh, it is it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Um, David Shank, as a receiver, was charged with ferreting out uh, property that, in theory, belonged to alien enemies. Um, and he's operating in the same area that is essentially uh, the same district, court district that he uh, worked in prior to the war, which is the Western Piedmont. It encompassed um, Gaston, Cleveland, uh, Lincoln, Catawba, Iredell, and Mecklenburg counties. And um, when he gets started in 1862, um, in one month, in September of 1862, he records in his diary that he has seized a vast amount of property in his district and has sold it. And in fact, he's just sold $20,000 worth of real estate. Um, and uh, he, under the, the terms of the act of sequestration, he was required to, rem, uh, to remit those funds uh, to, uh, to the district court, which would then send those funds to the sequestration fund kept by the Confederate Treasury in Richmond. And from that fund, loyal Confederates, and they never got around to defining what a loyal Confederate was, um, loyal Confederates who lost their property due to the advance of Union armies uh, into, into the Confederacy, they could apply for an indemnity. I have yet to define anyone who received any such indemnity. And in fact, I, if you, I have, I have the, the, the ledger, copies of the, the, the uh, sequestration ledger. And in 1862, David Shank remitted only $3,000 to the sequestration fund. Um, so in short, there's no, there's no evidence that's the full $20,000 worth of, of uh, property that was sold at auction was ever uh, submitted to uh, to the sequestration fund, which naturally raises the question, where did that money go? At the same time, David Shank starts to record in his his diary uh, that he's he's really earning an awful lot of money. Uh, in fact, he's just um, uh, bought some property, uh, you know, in town, a nice nice uh, choice piece of property in town, and is in the process of building himself a new house, and uh, he's uh, going to uh, use about $4,000 to build this house, which was really quite a lot of money at the time. Um, and he later goes on to, to say that he, he buys a, a slave, uh, that uh, Dodson Ramser purchase, uh, purchases a slave for him in Richmond and sends it to him uh, there in, in North Carolina. And, um, and the slave cost him about $1,500. Um, he later on, a few months later, uh, he does sort of a, an annual reckoning of his net worth. Um, and he reckons that he has, uh, he's now earned 
just in the last few months, upwards of $9,000, which he has in, in his possession, in addition to uh, the property and the house that he's, uh, he's working on. He's also acquired several other properties elsewhere. The long and the short of it is simply this. David Shank enters into the Civil War as a struggling, struggling middle-class lawyer. He emerges from the Civil War as a wealthy man. How does that happen when you're being paid in Confederate currency, which was depreciating almost daily, in an economy that was spinning out of control almost from the very beginning? It, it, is, it really is breathtaking that he writes these things, the self-congratulatory things about all the money and property he's acquiring. Uh, as, as you say, the, the circumstantial evidence that he's seizing property Richmond's not getting the property. He, at the same time, is getting property. Meanwhile, the the man he loves and admires is fighting for the Confederacy and sacrifices his life on the battlefield, whereas he complains his health is such he could never serve in the Army, although he's able to take a 30-day camping trip in the Appalachians after the war. So he's... <laughs> He can stay so. on the home front and watch when uh, the conscription acts go into effect. And he can look his, um, his neighbors in the eye as they, uh, you know, the young men and the boys are marching off, uh, off to, uh, to battle and not feel the least bit guilty. David Shanks. Uh, Confederate identity, and this is really why, ultimately, this is why the book is entitled The Contours of Confederate Identity. This is a powerful, enduring identity. David Shank never once, never once, even, even later in his life and on his deathbed, never once considers for a moment that what he's doing is wrong. He's thoroughly convinced of the righteousness of, of what he's doing. That's, that's, um, this property and wealth that he's acquiring, this is, uh, this is what comes of his loyalty to the Confederacy, his clear, um, uh, his devotion, uh, the, the person that he is, this, you know, this identity is, it wins for him all of these, these trophies and this treasure that he takes from, from his neighbors. And then later in his diary, he will describe the, you know, the, the discontent on the home front uh, as being the results of people being lazy, people being yes. wicked, and people not having a, a true sense of patriotism. That's why they're suffering. The people whose money he's taken are now poor, and that's their fault. That's because right. Because they lack more quality. <laughs> And the the people who grow cotton instead of food for the army are wicked, whereas he speculates in cotton, exactly. and that's God's plan for his prosperity. That's right. Yes, there's, it's, there's, it's bizarre how his, his his pompous religiosity blinds him to uh, to everything he's doing. It's just yes. it's fascinating. It is fascinating, um, and it's there's there's more to it uh, than this because um, you know he. He's taking people's property, and while the menfolk are away, and of course we know that North Carolina had enormous desertion rates, and many of those menfolk uh, come back, um, and they want their property back. <laughs> yeah. And he's uh, David Schenck as a receiver is uh, he's an officer of the courts, and so he could call upon the sheriff and ultimately on the home guard to protect himself. And this really is. This is an interesting link here, um, because 
as we transition out of the war, uh, there there comes a moment when David Schenck is is terrified that he's going to be held to account for all of the property that he's taken. Um, in fact, there's a, a scare uh, where this looks like this might might be a, a reality. But it's, it never happens. It, this, the, the threat of this falls by the wayside. And it's really not long after that um, when he, he starts to practice law once again um, that he becomes the leader of the Invisible Empire. And that, that is significant because in that position, he used force or violence or the threat of it to protect himself and the property that he has taken from neighbors um, uh, to protect himself from retaliation. It, it, I, I'm just rushing along here because we're down to our last few minutes, and I just can't get over this guy. He's bad enough during the war. He's a shir- he's you know a shirker who doesn't serve, but he does take his neighbor's property. Mm-hmm. After the war, he you know calls on the militia to protect him. He he organizes the clan to terrorize and use violence against others. But the moment, and you, you said this earlier in the show, the moment the federal government calls him uh, to Washington to testify, he spills his guts and gives betrays all his clan. Com- comrades. <laughs> That's He's right. got not an ounce of principle in him, yet he believes himself the most principled man in North Carolina. That's right. Yes. It and, is and just... that is, I think that is what's, what's so fascinating about this guy. Is he, he really believes uh, that he is just a paragon of virtue. One of the people that he betrays, of course, is Randolph Abbott Shotwell, who's quite a, quite a figure in North Carolina history. And um, Shotwell, and then later, um, Albion Tourget, who was a carpetbagger mm-hmm. judge uh, in Greensboro. Um, these men will, uh, when David Schenck makes a bid for uh, becoming the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, both of these men write these scathing articles and uh, publish letters in, in all of the major newspapers in North Carolina, exposing David Schenck for everything, every dirty thing he had ever done. And uh, that is a pivotal moment because it's at that point that David Shank's political aspirations um, and his public life really come to an abrupt end. He had been relegated to the shadowy margins of the of the party, the now Democratic Party, and of, to a large extent of society as well. Um, uh, Governor Vance uh, doesn't come to his rescue, <laughs> which he thought that Vance would, but when David Shank failed to realize is that uh, this is in the mid-1870s. What David Schenck failed to realize is that um, the ground had shifted beneath him. The paradigm had changed. By this point, uh, you have a a new generation of of politicians in the Democratic Party that no longer wants anything to do with the radical radical politics uh, that led up to the secession crisis. and more to the point, that, that Confederate identity that David Schenck had crafted for himself has fallen out of vogue. But it's like a, it's like a coat, uh, a mantle that's, that he's created for himself, he puts on, and over the years it becomes threadbare and well-worn, but he can't take it off. It's, it's and, and become yet, a in, part in the of last it. Years, in the last years of his life, and, and we're, we're right at the very end of our show, unfortunately, he does, again, you said this uh, earlier, 
turn to different causes, to Revolutionary War battlefield preservation, to writing history, uh, to supporting public education. He, he, he does gain some measure of redemption at the end. But he does, and really boy, the, the, the big it. act of redemption comes in the form of creating the Guilford Battle, Battlegrounds Company. Uh, the Guilford Courthouse Battleground, or the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, rather, the revolutionary battle fought in North Carolina, uh, wherein North Carolina militia were, uh, were just roundly criticized for a poor performance. And Rod, I apologize that I'm going to have to cut you off because we're ab- absolutely out of time. The oh. engineer is telling me we've got to go and let the next show come on the air. But we've left a little taste for readers to go and get a copy of David Schenck in the Contours of Confederate Identity. It is uh, a short and really intriguing book about a fascinating character. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy and learn more about this fellow. Uh, Rodney, it was a pleasure talking to you this evening. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.